Good afternoon. Welcome back to Revelation Bible Study. Seems like it was just last week we was here. Oh, wait. It was just last week we was here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to worship, to read and study your word together, God. We ask that you'll move, that you'll touch, Lord. Let this video, wherever it may go, wherever it may be, Lord, we ask that you'll touch and bless those that are listening. Lord, that you'll stretch forth your hand, Lord, either tonight or in the future, God, that you'll stretch forth your hand on those that listen. And Lord, that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message. Lord, and that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. We are in verse 13, Revelation chapter 1. We are flying. This is the fourth week of Revelation. We're not out of one chapter yet. Verse 13, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. We see a clear picture of Jesus here as our high priest. Because if you go back and, and you look at some of the other books of the Bible, and especially Leviticus and even in the Exodus, it talks about how the high priest should wear, what he should look like. And, and it talks about the long robes, and it talks about the girdle, about his waist and his chest. We're seeing, a high, we're seeing a picture of Christ as our high priest on this one. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. Seven candlesticks. He is standing in the midst of seven candlesticks. And as we discussed last, night, last week, excuse me, that's 49 candles that are lit. 49 candles would definitely be a way to uh, light up just about any room no matter how dark it was. So we're seeing a clear indication of who Christ was, and there's no confusion on John's part. He can see clearly who he is talking to and whom he's talking about. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, he uses the phrase of son of man to denote Christ in a vision that he has. And this is Daniel. I saw night visions, and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and the kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. He's using the phrase son of man in that scripture to denote Christ. In John's vision, the revelation the Son of Man also denotes Christ. And in John's vision, Christ is dressed as a high priest. John sees Christ, the Son of Man, amid the seven candlesticks of the menorah. The phrase, Son of Man, is used around 88 times in the New Testament to tell who Jesus was and is. It is one of the main phrases that Christ uses to tell who he is as well. But what does this name imply? In the Bible and in the culture of the time, names meant something. And we often see names being changed. Simon's name was changed to Peter, which means rock 
or stone, which tells the role that Peter would play in the new church. In the Old Testament, we see that Jacob's name, which means supplanter or deceiver, is changed to Israel, which means the man who wrestled with God. However, a famous name that was changed in the New Testament never actually happened. And that's Saul. We all say his name was changed to Paul. But really, his name wasn't changed. He was known by both. He was known as always as Saul, and he was also known as Paul, depending on who he was talking to. And the crowd, the culture denoted which name he would use. So how can I say this? In Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, we read, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Saul, Paul, was a Hebrew and Roman origin. His Hebrew name, Saul, was used when he went around persecuting the Christians. But after his Damascus Road experience and on his first missionary journey, we see him using his Roman name, Paul. It was common to have two names, especially if you were of two different nations. He was Hebrew, he was Rome, so he had two names. His name was Saul, his name was Paul. Technically, we never he never had his name changed. Using the title Son of Man, Jesus was pointing out that he was human and not just a deity. Matthew 12 and 32 says, And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in the world, neither in the world to come. Matthew 13 and 37, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is of the Son of Man. Luke 12 and 8, also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. John 1 and 51, And he saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Luke 9 and 58, And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. My mother always said that was the saddest scripture in the Bible to her. Because Jesus is truly saying, I don't really fit in here. I don't belong here. We often interpret that verse as, well, he doesn't have a place to sleep. He doesn't have a place to lay down. But that may not be the case. If you study that verse, it's more than... It, it goes more than beyond the material things. It's, I don't have a, I don't belong in this world. I'm not of this world. You know, we should think the same thing. We should be of that same mindset. We don't belong to this world. We belong in this world to lead the world as the Holy Spirit draws us and directs us and guides us. Matthew 11 and 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous 
and a wine-bibber, a friend of the publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Matthew 17 and 12, But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of him. There was another time that someone other than Jesus referred to him as the Son of Man. And that's the martyr Stephen. In Acts 7, 56, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Ezekiel was called the Son of Man or Son of a Man almost 100 times. But as Son of Man, Jesus was uniquely qualified to save us from our sins because he is the Son of God, but also to show us how to live as the Son of Man and to teach us how to die because he died with dignity. He died without complaining. He died without griping. He was beaten, as we talked about last week. He was beaten. He had the thorn thrust upon his head, and yet he didn't open his mouth. And even on the cross, he looked at him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had the worst kind of torture, and yet mm -hmm. he still forgave those that was tormenting him. We can't even get on the highway without fussing and ranting and raving. Trust me, believe me, drive with me. You'll see it. We need to understand, and for those of you that has just joined us and that you know don't haven't been here in the last few weeks, we're taking a tour of the Bible through the study of Revelation. And there will be a lot of stops along the way. I like to call myself the tour guide. And that's all I am. I'm, I'm just a tour guide. I'm just pointing these things out. But getting back to what we're talking about, we're in the book of Revelation now, personally. We're living in the days of sorrow. We're living in the towards the end of times. Now, when will that end of times be? We don't know. We have no clue. But we know that the Son of Man, Jesus, is here with us in spirit by the Holy Ghost, our Holy Spirit. We understand that he is here to direct us and guide us and get us to the point where we need to be. And that's heaven. This is just a, this is a truck stop, if you will. If you do a lot of traveling, you probably have stopped at truck stops along the way. This is a truck stop called Earth. We're here, we're picking up Mountain Dews, Doritos, and talking to people. Go with me to any truck stop and I'll carry on the conversation with anybody. I don't care. I've, I've actually stopped truck drivers and pointed things out on their truck that needed to be worked on, needed to be fixed. Because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to look at stuff like that. But we need to be trained also to look at the shape and the state of the world and not in a condescending matter and not in a holier-than-thou attitude, but we need to be able and willing to say, hey, look, you know, you're going the wrong way. Here's another path. Here's the right path. We wouldn't like to see our friends drive off a cliff. We wouldn't like to see our family drive off a cliff because the road wasn't clearly marked. The road is clearly marked, but yet we're standing there at the edge and we're watching people drive off every day. It's, it behooves us to study the scriptures 
and to tell others about Jesus. As the Son of Man, he came to die for me. He came and died for you. No matter what the state you're in. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now that's a pretty good indication. That's a good, clear picture of Christ and what he physically looked like. But why did he physically look like this? Why did his head and his hairs, why are they white as wool and white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire? Why did John see that and write it? John describes how the man in his vision looks in vivid detail. But at the same time, in his description of the man he saw, John tells of his character. And you could even say his personality. In this description, John also ties his vision back to Daniel and Ezekiel's vision that they each have. Now let's look at those characteristics and physical attributes that John takes note of and see about not only the character but the stern and stoic countenance of Christ. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Takes us to Daniel, to the appearance of God the Father. In Daniel 7 and 9 it states, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Christ tells us, if we see him, we see the Father. So he's come with white hair, wool, white as wool, and white as snow. And it represents what Daniel saw way back hundreds of years before. Noticing Christ's hair was pure wool, or like pure wool, John has now given us an attribute of God the Father, which Christ is the Son of God, as well as the Son of Man. Jesus even told his disciple Philip in John 14 and 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been not so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? He's showing the Father. He's showing the Father to, to John. He's showing the Father to us. And are we mirroring? Are we showing the Father? My hair is not as white as wool. That's a given. That is an absolute given. And in this North Carolina heat and humidity, it just frizzes up and it goes all over the place. Can't do nothing with it. It's not so much the physical attributes. But are we projecting Christ where we go? If we're projecting Christ, we're projecting God the Father. We're also projecting God the Holy Ghost. And it is because God the Holy Ghost lives within us that we are able to project Jesus or able to project the Father. It's not me. It's God through me. I'm just a vessel. Lynn and I have a cup of tea every night. Hot tea, even in this weather. Yeah, we're kind of crazy. We have a cup of hot tea. I don't drink the cup. It's just the vessel. 
I drink the contents of the cup. Now, I will admit, some of the tea is better than others. I've already said there's one, one tea that, yeah, now nah, it's going to be probably thrown in the trash before long because it's just not very good. But I don't care what cup it's in. That's just a vessel. I'm more concerned with what's the content. We're a vessel. Are we more concerned with the vessel than we are the contents, what's inside? I read a beautiful little story earlier today about a little girl who wore shabby clothes, and I won't take up much of your time on this one, but she wore shabby clothes, and this was up in Philadelphia at the turn of the century, early 1900s. She had tried to go to church, and people told her, church is full, you can't come. She wanted to go to Sunday school so bad. We can't get people to come to Sunday school anymore. But this little girl wanted to go to Sunday school. Well, as she was sitting there on the sidewalk crying, a man walked by and she said, he said, honey, what, what are you crying about? Well, I can't go to church. What do you mean you can't go to church? Well, they say the church is full. I wanted to go to Sunday school. And they say the church is full. He said, well, come with me. And he held his hand out and the little girl got a hold of his hand and they walked into church. We'll see, it was the pastor. You're not going to turn the pastor of the church out. At least I hope you don't. He found her a room and he made room for her and she sat down and she enjoyed her Sunday school and him and her became really good friends. Two years later, this little girl had died. And in her possessions, there was an old worn out red purse that had 57 cents in it. 57 cents. She had saved and saved and saved and she was wanting to save enough money to build a larger Sunday school. You heard the pastor just a couple of weeks ago say, start praying and if anybody's got any ideas on how to make more room for Sunday schools, let him know. We need 57 cents. Because now, now, 100 years later, this church seats 3,300 people. There's a university. There's a hospital. And there's an extremely large Sunday school building. All because a little girl saved 57 cents. What can you do? You never know who you're influencing. You never know what you're going to say that makes a difference. And sometimes the best sermons are just sitting there in silence. My son told me one time that he went with me to a funeral to learn what to say at funerals. I walked up to the bereaved I grabbed a hold of them, I hugged them, I pulled them up close. This was pre-pandemic, of course. And we just stood there and cried, and I walked off. My son told me later, said, Dad, that spoke volumes. Are we projecting Christ? Are we putting forth Christ? Can Christ be seen in this old, stupid, ugly, bald, fat, country boy vessel? Can Christ be seen? That's the question you have to ask yourself. And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis.
Can Christ be seen in us? If we see Jesus, we see God. Because even though they are separate, they are the same. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit, operates together, and one does not do anything that the others do not allow or do themselves. My father-in-law put it to me this way. God thought it. Jesus spoke it. Holy Spirit put it into action. When you go back to the first book of Genesis, or the first chapter of Genesis, and you see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Holy Spirit moved on the face of the deep, on the darkness. God thought it. Jesus spoke it. Holy Spirit put it in action. Best way I've ever heard to describe the Trinity, and if anybody can give me a better analogy, I would love to hear it. So he's got white hair, throws us back to God the Father. And, and in that culture, white hair meant wisdom. That's where a lot of times we, we believe that the older people, which I am now one of, the older people, it's hard to believe. But we believe that the older people have wisdom. Well, I know some old people that ain't got a bit of wisdom. They ain't got sense and God gave a goose. I know young people, kids, Brother Terrence's age, kids, youngins, that have got a lot of wisdom. As old codgers, we can learn something from the young people. The young people can learn something from us, but you see where we're missing it and where I feel like church is really blowing it is we don't mentor people anymore. We don't even talk about mentorship in, in churches much anymore. That's something that's needed in the Christian body. What do I mean by mentor? I've walked a certain path. I know the pitfalls. I know where the ledge drops off to a sheer precipice. I should be willing to reach out to those that are newer in the faith. Not newer in age, but newer in the faith. And tell them, hey, look, this is where I stumbled. This is where I nearly fell. This is where I did fall. Let me help you get through this. I've often said we can get people to the altars, but by golly, that's where we leave them. That's the worst place to leave a Christian, is at the altar. Because trust me, when they get up, before they walk to the back of the church, their Satan's climbed up on them, or one of his minions has climbed up on them and said, you didn't get a thing. What are you doing? And then they go home. And sometimes they go home to an empty house, no encouragement. Even if there's people there, it's still an empty house because there's no godly encouragement. What does a young Christian do these days? Google it. Be careful when you Google stuff. There's a lot of junk out there that you don't need to Google. So who do you turn to? Oh, you can, you can pull out your Bible, and that's well and good, and you should read, and you should ask God to help open your eyes of understanding. But isn't it better to have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with someone that's, that's been there, that's done it? When I got trained in my first job, 
There was this individual. I'll even tell you what his name is, Glenn Long. Glenn took me kind of under his wing and trained me and taught me a lot of stuff over the years and my first job. 36 years later, we have both changed positions. He moved out of that first department and into a new department. I went out of the first department into a new department. And eventually, Glenn came over into my department. Now, I'm mentoring Glenn. The roles reversed. And he and I have laughed about it quite often. I would run to him for questions, and now he's calling me for questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. But be willing to be that mentor. I thank God for men like Glenn and men like Albert Harrison and men like Ken Gurley, men like Ronnie Blackman that reached out and took me under their wings and helped me along. I thank God for men like Dave Gunner, Cecil Hammond, Gary Simmons, because they reached out in Christian love and I climbed under their wings, and that's why I'm standing here today. And women, Linda Gunner. Now, me and her pick on each other all the time. I love my mother-in-law, and I don't even know if she's watching. I don't see her name on the, the list. But she took me under her wing. She adopted me as one of her own children. She has shown me a lot of God love. We need to reciprocate that. We need to give the world godly wisdom. His eyes were as a flame of fire, penetrating and illuminating the sin and other failures that he looks at. Now, remember, he's surrounded, Christ is still surrounded by seven candlesticks. There are seven menorahs, 49 blazing candles. I bring this point out because John clearly says his eyes were as a flame. It was brighter. His eyes was more fiery than the 49 candles that was lit around him. Oh, well, some will say that his eyes was reflecting the candlelight. Look into a candle's flames. Look at the reflection. It's not fiery red. It's white. It's reflecting what it sees. Your eyes are a mirror. So he's looking and his eyes are shining brighter. A little later in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 18, we will read, And unto the angel in the church of Thyreta, write these things, saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Not to be too secular, but you can look at Christ's eyes in this picture, if you will, this photograph that John has just handed us, this Polaroid, as we talked about last week. You can look at it as two lasers. We know what lasers are. We see them all around us. Our mouse operates on optical laser. The bar scanner at, at Walmart operates on a, on a laser. You can cut metal with a hot enough laser. 
You can shoot down weapons with a hot enough laser. So you can look at Christ's eyes in this Polaroid picture, if you will, as a laser. It's very hot, penetrating, very focused. And that's all laser is, is a focused beam of light. It's able to pierce all the way to the heart and see the sin that we would attempt to hide from him. Now, the fieriness also shows, hold on to your hats for this one, shows that he has wrath. We all talk about, oh, I saw red when I got mad. Christ has wrath, not ungodly wrath. It's justifiable, but he is a God of wrath as well. So his penetrating eyes, his red penetrating eyes, his piercing eyes shows forth that he has wrath and he is about to bring judgment to the earth. Verse 15. This may be where we get to tonight. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. John's description or photograph continues of Christ. Now turning to his feet. Now you think that's kind of odd. We went from his head, his hair, and his eyes down to his feet. There's a reason. His feet is like fine brass burned in a furnace. Brass, when in a furnace, becomes a brilliant white color. And since the scriptures points out that it is fine brass, there are very few impurities. So there would be no varying color because of the contamination. His feet were brilliant white with no color, other colors. We get the other colors because of the contamination. We get the reds from the iron. We get the blues from the cobalt. We see these colors come out because, and a lot of times we make, we put this contamination, we put these other metals in there to bring forth those colors. But this is fine brass. This is all, this is pure stuff. So there's no other contamination. There's no anything. This, he's glowing a bright white. What was brass used for? And was it for any importance? Numbers 21 and 9. Moses made a serpent of brass. Mm -hmm. Put it upon a pole and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. They then went and turned those snakes into gods later on. But at that moment, all you had to do was look on the serpents of brass. Couldn't have been serpents of glass. It couldn't have been serpents of iron. It couldn't have been serpents of wood. It had to be serpents of brass. Psalms 107 verse 16 says, For he hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Broken the gates of brass. Tells me that brass is somewhat strong. They're using it for gates, for protection, for security. Micah 4 and 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, 
and I will consecrate their gain unto their Lord and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Jeremiah 1 and 18. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city and an iron pillar and brass and walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. Now we see brass walls. Jeremiah fifteen twenty, and I will make unto thee a peep, this people a fenced brazen wall, and they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Brass is strong. It's used in weapons. It's used in defense. It's used in offense. It's used for self-protection. It's used for country protection. In the tabernacle, do we see the word brass being used in the tabernacle or in the temple? Exodus 27, verses 1 through 4, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be the same. And thou shalt overlay it with brass. It also shines. You can shine brass really pretty. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh hooks and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof shalt thou shalt make of, you got it, brass. Thou shalt make of it for a grate of network of brass. And upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. Brass is very important to God. Brass is very important in, in the decoration of the tabernacle. It's very important in the statues that we see later on in some of the visions. It's very important to understand. Brass is used for defense. It's used for offense. It's used for protection. It is very useful even to this day. Well, there's a lot of professional cookware that is brass. It doesn't contaminate. It doesn't get bacteria on it easily. It's easily cleaned. It's easily taken care of. The brass altar, center of the court, where was the sacrifice for the sin was completed. This offer was a burnt sacrifice. And at the time, the bronze could withstand the heat of the fire for the sin sacrifice. This lets us to know that the feet of brass burned in the furnace represented the judgment of man from God, since the feet is what anything stands on. If the sin is under the feet, then it is covered. If the sin is not under the feet, the sin is not covered and will be judged. His vision, John's vision of Christ shows that he has brass feet that are glowing. Where are our sins? Have we laid them on the altar of sacrifice? Now, we're not in the tabernacle. We're not in the temple. The sacrifice is Christ Jesus on the cross of Calvary. But have we taken and given him everything? The voice of many waters refers to the sound, the majesty, and the power of the voice that was speaking.
You ever been near a waterfall? You had to yell to be heard over it because of the massive amount of sound. You wouldn't think a glass of water could make a lot of sound. We'll make it millions of glasses of water and it has a sound to it. Daniel 10 and 6, his body was also like the barrel. His face is the appearance of lightning and his eyes is lamps of fire and his arms and his feet are in color to polished brass. The voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Very loud. Not chaotic, not confusing, but very loud. Get into a group. Listen to the singing. When everybody is singing the exact same word, it projects. It's powerful. It carries. A good friend of mine had a voice that was, it would reverberate through concrete walls. He could be out in the parking lot talking. You could hear him in here. I promise you, you could. His voice just carried. It was the perfect voice for radio and for sound. As far as I know, he never done either. Ezekiel 1 and 24, And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters. As the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host, when they stood, they let down their wings. Listen to a herd of horses running across the fields. You will hear it and you will feel it. Get in front of a big bass drum. You will hear it and you will feel it. But why? Sound carries. It moves. It vibrates. It's got power. Nazis tried to develop a sound weapon. They literally tried to put a big speaker on a carriage and blast noise loud enough to disrupt the enemy, which, by the way, would have been us. You can get in a noisy enough environment that will make you disoriented because sound is very powerful. Sound waves can knock down buildings. There is a science theory out there that the harmonic vibrations of the children of Israel walking around the gates or the walls of Jericho every day, six days, one time, and on the seventh day they walked around seven times and then they shouted. They say that the harmonic vibrations is what brought down the wall. Bull. God brought down the wall. But the military used to, I don't know if they still do, but the military used to have people walk out of step when they crossed bridges because of the vibration. The harmonic vibrations could bring down that bridge. I don't know if they still do that or not. Couldn't tell you. But I know in the ancient days, they would literally make their soldiers break stride or break step so that the harmonic vibrations of their of everybody walking in step, it magnifies. That's the multitude factor. Ezekiel 43 and 2, And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. The voice thundered and had great power. 
and majesty. It was clear as a bell. He understood exactly what the voice said, but it carried so much power. It was a powerful voice. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Christ, and he said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. He said, well, I am he. The power of his voice knocked them over on their backs. Jesus, I think, just kind of stood there and looked at him and went, come on, boys. They get up. He said, okay, I'm going to ask again, who are, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. I done told you I'm him. So they arrested him and took him off. But the sound of his voice, the power of his voice knocked people over. That's a powerful voice. You ever been in a speech? You ever been in, a, in an area where someone was speech, speaking and their speech was so motivating? Had you standing on your feet? Had you charging and cheering and, and ranting to go? Unfortunately, I'm not that good of an orator, but I know somebody that used to. He's passed away now. But the first time I ever heard this man speak, mm -hmm. he could have asked that congregation to have picked up the pews and carried them out of the church, piled them up and done whatever. And the people would have picked up the pews and carried them out. He was that powerful of a speaker. It's the only time in my life I think I was ever in a speech that I literally was sitting there going, okay, I'm wanting to listen, but I don't need to get my emotions involved in this. You want to hear a really good speech? Not what he was saying, but how to say it. Turn on Hitler. Awesome orator. Listen to John F. Kennedy's speech. Listen to Martin Luther King Jr. speaking. Honestly, those are the three best speakers I think I've ever listened to recordings of. I don't understand Hitler. Don't understand a word the man said. But I understand the emotions that can be carried forth through that speech. So you can use your voice for good or you can use your voice for evil. One of the probably the worst speakers that I have ever listened to an audio recording of, he passed away just right after I was born, but his speeches moved people was Winston Churchill. But when you listen to the words, it's like, the words don't really carry a lot of weight. But when you watch him and when you hear him and you get in, they carry a bunch of weight. Another one that really didn't carry a whole lot of weight when, when they spoke was the debate between Richard Nixon, John F. Kennedy. If you listened on the radio to that first debate, Richard Nixon won that debate hands down, without question. Richard Nixon. If you watched the debate on TV, John F. Kennedy won. It was his presence. It was his attitude. Bill Clinton. You may not like him. President Clinton, you may like him. I don't know. Don't care. We're not political here. But in his first, one of his first debates, 
I saw him do something that I've never seen a presidential candidate do before, and I knew right then that I was going to be the winner of the presidential election. Knew it. They ask, they're all sitting down in their chairs, and they ask President Clinton a question, and he stood up, and he walked close to the person that asked the question, and he talked straight to them, and you understood that you were the only person in the world besides Bill Clinton at that time. Words carry. Sound carries. It has power behind it. The voice thundered and had great power and majesty to it. If you've ever stood by or in front of a mighty waterfall, it is hard to hear anything else but the water and the sound it makes as it crashes below. It is a sound that can be felt as much as it can be heard. Listen to a locomotive running the rails. It's a sound that can be felt as much as it can be heard. And you know what? There is no way. There is no way I'm going to get through verse 16 tonight. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. Blue skies and sunshine. High noon. Sun's not any yet brighter than that. Remember, Christ is behind or encircled by seven menorahs that are lit up. Forty-nine candles again. And yet John sees that his countenance was as the sun shining at its strength. Jesus was literally glowing with the Shekinah glory of God. Literally glowing. Moses, we see, came from the mountain and he had to wear a veil because his face shone and it scared the people. I would be a little afraid too, to be honest with you, if I looked and there was somebody glowing beside of me. So he wore a veil when he talked to the people, but when he talked to God, he took the veil off. Because we don't need to have anything between us and God. And that veil, even though it was thin, that was something between him and God. He took it off. But when he was talking to the people, the veil was down to not scare the people. Revelation is a self-revealing prophetic book. We see in Revelation 1 and 20 what the seven stars are, and we will get there maybe next week, actually. Seven stars as well as what the seven candlesticks represent. Revelation 1 and 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sowest, are the seven churches. So we see angels and we see churches. We see an angel for each church. We know that we have guardian angel, without a question. Going to surprise you. I've heard mine literally, physically, heard my guardian angel walking over the years. Didn't scare me. I honestly thought it was my mother. 
The next morning I got up and I said, hey, mom, why did you get up at two o'clock in the morning? Rob, I didn't. Mom, I, I heard you walking. My mother had a distinctive walk. I heard you walking. No, Rob, it really wasn't me. And my dad was like, no, nah, she didn't get up. She, you know, she got up, she would have woke me up. She didn't get up. Well, I knew it wasn't my dad or my brother. They have also a distinctive sound. They usually don't turn on the lights and they ran into stuff. You could tell who it was. You know, it's a dad or Richard. And knew it wasn't me. I was still in bed. Has to be who? What? My imagination? It only came when I was concerned about something. That sound I only heard when I was concerned about something. Honestly believe, and I will go to my grave believing it was my guardian angel and I was hearing my guardian angel walking. We see that it says it's a self-revealing prophetic book at times. At times, it will be revealed as we need it to be revealed. We talked about the Polaroid last week, how you took an old picture, you took a picture with a Polaroid camera, it spit it out, and you shook it a little bit, and the, and the photograph started to develop, and you got to see a little bit more and a little bit more as the photo developed. That's what Revelation is. It's a photograph that's developing right before our eyes. We are living in the most exciting times of history because we're watching it develop. Now, will we get to see all of Revelation? I have no clue. And anybody that tells you that, yes, they know, they don't have a clue either. Leave them alone because they are probably not where they need to be with God. Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. He said, God the Father knows, but I don't. So why are we trying to figure it out? And that's not what this class is about. We are here to learn how to read the road signs. You know, when you took your driver's test, you had to, well, that's a, a yield sign, or that's a stop sign, that's a sign, that's a railroad crossing sign, that's whatever sign. You had to know the road signs. That was part of your test. We need to know the road signs. It's part of our test. Mm -hmm. We're going to park it here. On verse 16, we'll take back up next week. But we now see that he's got angels in one hand. He's got the church in the other hand. But there's something special and unique that's coming out of his mouth. And that's a two-edged sword. We'll get big time into the two-edged sword next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity once again to study your word. God, we ask that you'll move, that you'll touch on each and every one as we go back to our homes. Lord, that you'll give us traveling mercies, Lord. And Lord, that you'll give us the opportunity, and Lord, we will, we will avail ourselves of that opportunity to study your word this week, this coming week, Lord, as we can get closer to you through your word. Lord, we ask in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen.